Morning, everyone. Good to be here. Um, Fats on this weekend, so I imagine none of you have had kids uh, away during the week and some during this weekend, and be good to keep praying uh, for the impact of God's word on uh, all the all the youth who are away. Let's uh, pray together now. Our Father, thank you so much for your love for us in Jesus. Uh, thank you so much for giving us to each other. Thank you so much for your word that you don't leave us in the dark, that we can actually know you, and that we can actually know the deeper realities of existence. And uh, we do pray for us this morning, please open our eyes so that we can see and feel these realities with even deeper clarity. Uh, We pray that for fat, uh, that uh, all those youth under the sound of your word, uh, please opening the eyes of their hearts so that they might see you clearly. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When it comes to what is real, I think we uh, tend to have uh, two categories in our head. There's real and there's not real. Real news, fake news. Is the Loch Ness Monster real or is it fake? Now, I said that at 8.30 and someone, a Scot, came up afterwards and said, "Ah, of course it's real, or something like that. But (laughs) actually, I think there's another category, uh, a bigger category than uh, real or not real, a super important category, and that category is more real. There's real, not real, and then there's more real. There are actually things that exist that are more real than other things, deeper realities, often invisible things, often things we can't see or touch, but not less real than the things that we can see and touch. In fact, more real. Today we have before us a wonderful, wonderful passage that exposes for us some of these more real things. So what I'm going to do is give us a brief overview, a very brief overview of the passage, but then delve a bit deeper into the words of Jesus, particularly around three more real things in this passage. So an overview of this wonderful passage. In this account, Jesus is doing the work of the evangelist. Now, I don't know about you, but in my mind, I often think Jesus does the work of dying to save, and then we do the work of evangelism. But in this passage, we get Jesus doing the work of evangelism. And it's an account that falls into two main parts, beautiful accounts of people coming to salvation through Jesus, the evangelist. The first half focuses on the wonderful salvation of one person. The second half focuses on the wonderful salvation of many people. The first half focuses on the salvation of one person, the Samaritan woman, an outsider. Now that stands in sharp contrast to chapter 3. Do you remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night? He's an insider. Jewish, religious, moral, a leader of the community. But it comes clear that he actually needs salvation. As you track his story through the pages of John's Gospel, he eventually comes to salvation. This woman here, though, is the opposite. She's an outsider. She's a Samaritan. That is an outcast, an outsider to God's people. She's religiously compromised. She's immoral. She's a community failure. But just as Nicodemus needed salvation, she needs saving too. And in this very account, hearing the words of Jesus, she comes to salvation. Insider, outsider. Religious, irreligious. Moral, immoral. Community leader or community failure, you need Jesus to save you. We need Jesus to save us. In the first half of the passage, Jesus brings salvation to one person, the Samaritan woman. In the second half of the passage, Jesus brings salvation to many people. The Samaritan woman goes back to the town and tells the people, could this be the Messiah? Come and see. They come out and see Jesus, meet with him, hear his words and put their faith in him and say, this truly is the saviour of the world. And so salvation comes to the many through the evangelist Jesus. And the many who are saved here, 
are again outsiders, not Jews, but Samaritans. Outsiders, outcasts, separate from God's Old Testament people. But Jesus comes to them and they are saved. Which shows to us that a giant harvest of the nations is beginning. The salvation of people from every nation, whether insider or outsider, religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, community leader or community failure who believe the words of Jesus the evangelist. A wonderful account of the salvation of the one and of the many. But now let's dig a little deeper into the words of Jesus and focus on some of the more real things that come to light in his words. Three realities I want to highlight, profound realities. Things that, although invisible, are actually more real and more important than their visible counterparts. Three more real things. And the first more real thing is this. Water. Real water. Water that is more real than physical water. Before I get up to speak, I drink a lot of water. Partially because I'm nervous, but partially because... I need to hydrate, need to get lots of water in so I don't ruin my, my throat. Is that water more real than this water? Is this water more real than that water? In Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman in this passage, he says a lot about water, about thirst, about life, which makes sense. He's standing by a well talking to a woman. And in this part of the world, dry, arid, water and its relationship to thirst and its relationship to life, very, very clear. Now, when you have water on tap, it's not quite so clear all the time. If you have no water, you are very clear. It meant you would get thirstier and thirstier and thirstier and eventually die. Water was life. And so Jesus speaks to the woman about water, but water that is more real than the physical water I drank before I got up. To quench a thirst that is more real than physical thirst. To give life that is more real than physical life. Is there some kind of water that is more real than the water that's right in front of us? Yes. Jesus is on his way back from Judea, once more to Galilee. He and his disciples have to go through Samaria. They come to the town of Sychar. Jesus is tired. He sits down by the well. The disciples go off into town to buy food. A woman, a Samaritan woman, comes out to draw water and the topics of water and thirst and life are introduced by Jesus, with Jesus asking the question, "'Will you give me a drink?' Now just pause there for a moment for a little aside. Just note that in verse 4, Jesus is tired. Verse 7, Jesus is thirsty, which is profound if you stop and think about it a little bit. God the Son, the eternal God, has become so fully human that he gets tired and thirsty. What an incredible, amazing thing that the God of the universe has become so human in every detail that he gets tired and thirsty. He's not putting it on. He's not acting as a human. He's not half a human. Jesus is fully human, truly human, and truly divine. He's experienced life as a human, just as we have. He knows what you're going through. Now, finish aside. <laughs> Back to the account. Jesus has in mind here, though, more than physical thirst, his physical thirst, real though that is. He's concerned about her and her thirst and about her more real thirst and need for water that is more real than just physical water. The woman responds, verse 9, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John makes the comment, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So right here, Jesus is breaking taboos. He's breaking cultural norms. A Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman, it wasn't done. Because the history was... The northern kingdom of Israel 
had broken away from the southern. And the northern kingdom of Israel had rebelled so greatly against God that God had brought judgment upon that kingdom. His judgment was the nation of Assyria who had come in and conquered the northern kingdom and taken many, most of the Jews, away and resettled them amongst other conquered lands. And people from other conquered lands had been brought in and resettled into the northern kingdom. And so what you get in this northern kingdom, the kingdom of Samaria, the region of Samaria, is the Samaritans intermixing, interbreeding of Jews with non-Jews. And so the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds, as not Jews at all. Add to this, the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they worshipped not in Jerusalem, the place where God had said, but on Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews saw them as religiously compromised as well as being half-breeds. So there's a great deal of tension between Jew and Samaritan. And in fact, a lot of hatred. And yet here Jesus is, not only speaking with the Samaritan woman, but asking her for a drink. Willing to touch what she had touched. Willing to drink from what she had used. And she's shocked at what Jesus is asking. But here... Jesus takes his first step to showing her that she has a thirst more real than physical thirst, even though she doesn't know about it. Verse 10. Have a look with me there. If you knew the gift of God, said Jesus, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I think Jesus is saying, if you knew the gift of God's salvation, you would have asked me for a drink of water. And I would have given you water that is more real and more life-giving than physical water. And Jesus used the word there, living water, which just means running water, flowing water, a stream of water, fresh, flowing, abundant, it keeps coming, as opposed to water that's still, water that's stagnant, a stagnant pond, a well, a cistern. Jesus is saying, I have water that is better. Flowing water, fresh, flowing, abundant water, which as we'll see later is an image for something far more than just physical running water. Jesus is trying to show her that she has a thirst that is more real than thirst for physical water uh, and more real than uh, a need for life that is more real than this life. See, physical thirst for water is real. You don't have it, you die. But we know of all sorts of other thirsts in life, don't we, as well? unseen thirst that is still deeply real. For instance, this woman seems like she's thirsty for more than water. From the account, it seems that she is thirsty for real, meaningful, loving relationships in which she was accepted and cared for. I think day by day, this woman felt a great deal of pain going inside. See, why is she there at the well in the middle of the day in the burning heat of the sun? There's no one else there. You would have normally come in the morning when the heat was off. That's when all the women would have come out to get the water. But she's there on her own, which speaks of being socially isolated, cut off, ostracised, because she's not the sort of good Samaritan that Samaritans wanted to associate with. See, from verse 18, we can see that she's had five husbands and is now in a sexual relationship with a man who is not her husband. It seems, from the little detail we're given, she's isolated, lonely, thirsty for deep, meaningful relationships where she might be loved and accepted. And that thirst is real, isn't it? That's a thirst that you can feel just as keenly as a mouth parched with need for water. And don't we all have similar thirsts? The thirst for real, meaningful, close relationships where we're loved, where we're understood, where we're accepted? Don't you thirst for purpose in life, for meaning, 
for a life that counts, for a life that makes a difference? Aren't we thirsty for our pains to go away? Our physical pains, our mental pains, our emotional pains, our psychological pains, our ageing pains. Aren't we thirsty for an end to the spectre of death that is always hiding in the corner of the room wherever we go? Aren't we thirsty for an end to the feelings of guilt, of shame, of failure, of uselessness, of disappointment? Aren't we thirsty for a life that isn't so relentless or so pressured or so monotonous and so boring? If we could just drink something that would quench these thirsts, now wouldn't that be something? We all have real needs, real pains, deep inner thirsts for things to be richer and better and more and unstained. We long for there to be something more than this life has turned out to be. There is an inner you and in that inner you there are thirsts that you might not share with anyone else and Jesus knows them. Jesus knows all of them. But all these thirsts, while real, while important, while painful, they're not the root. They're not the realest of the real. They're not the deepest of the deep. There still lies a thirst that is more real than any other thirst, that lies behind all these other thirsts. These thirsts are symptoms of a far deeper thirst, whether we recognise it or not, which is where Jesus goes next. In verses 11 and 12, we see the Samaritan woman still doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, fair enough, and says, where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? She thinks he's still talking about running water, and thinks he's claiming to be greater than Jacob. How could you possibly be greater than Jacob who gave us this well? A hero to both Jews and Samaritans. The irony is, Jesus is far greater than Jacob, the greatest man who ever will walk this earth. And so now Jesus brings great clarity to what he's claiming. Verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You drink physical water, you'll be thirsty again. But Jesus says, you drink the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. In fact, it will become within you an abundant stream of life that flows and flows and flows on forever. What is this water? It is life forever with God. That's the water. That's real life. Eternal life in relationship with the God who made us. That's the gift that Jesus has come to bring, true life, real life. Life in relationship with God that starts now and we live through this life, but then goes on perfected for all eternity. You can be oblivious of your thirst for this life because we deliberately ignore it. But the reality is that every single human being without Jesus is dying from this thirst. We cut off from God, the source of life, who is the water. But Jesus has come to give us this water, to reconnect us to God, to bring us back into a relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. There is a life more real than life. So when we tend to think about life, we tend to think about physical existence, not being dead, or about living this physical existence to get the most out of it on this planet. But the life that Jesus is speaking about is more real than just physical existence. If you have physical existence but no relationship with God, you are living but dead. You're the living dead. Uh, Years ago, there was this movie, um, first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, The the Black Pearl. And it was called The Black Pearl because it was about this ship, The Black Pearl. And it was a cursed ship because the sailors on the ship had stolen cursed gold. And so the ship was cursed. Now, in the daytime, it was a uh, normal pirate ship 
doing normal part yeah, normal partnership normal partnership doing normal priority stuff they were climbing the rigging and they were scrubbing the deck and they were steering the boat and they were doing all their basic sailor stuff and it just looked looked normal looked like any other sort of ship on the seas but at night when the clouds cleared and the and the moon came out from behind the clouds and it shined upon it it was revealed exposed for what it actually was it was tattered and rotted it was a dead ship a cursed ship and when you saw the crew they were skeletons rotting flesh hanging off them skeletal they were the living dead under the curse god is the source of life when we're cut off from that source of life we are cut off from god so we may be living but we're actually dead the living dead with a flower cut from the bush alive but not alive with the ice cube taken from the freezer and dropped on the hot concrete still here but not for long the person in the outback without water cut off from god the real water we're dying of thirst and this death will be eternal death not in the sense that we'll die and that will be the end forever but in the sense that we will die and be cut off from the source of life forever god and his goodness the worst of this life multiplied magnified a millionfold and that doesn't even describe it people cut off from god are dying of thirst whether they know it or not and often people recognize oh i know there is something wrong but they don't tend to think it's that and so instead we tend to put it down to other things and spend our time running around trying to quench our thirst a deep thirst for god with things that are not god and won't quench them the pursuit of wealth the pursuit of happiness of comfort of success of entertainment of pleasure of relationships of health of or we just trying to get through with the pain of life in this thirsty world and so we self medicate with drink and drugs and gambling and food and pornography and social media and entertainment and exercise and but you try to quench your thirst with something that is not the fresh pure water of god and the life that he offers and it never quenches and it never goes well i love coke who loves coke that's a real treat for me i don't have that often but you know when it's icy cold and i don't i don't drink coffee or anything so i don't get a lot of caffeine so when i just you know the power goes through and it, oh, i just just love it but you do you do know when you drink soft drink you think oh that is so refreshing i'm no longer th- a little bit thirsty just yeah you get you actually find you get thirstier and thirstier it's designed to make you more and more and more thirsty not actually to quench your thirst imagine you lived on coke imagine you constantly you gave away water and you just lived on soft drink what would that do to your body will you see what it does to some people's body their teeth start rotting out of their heads they you get obese it does all sorts of terrible things and eventually you get diabetes and you die it's terrible for you but that's what we do instead of drinking the pure fresh water who is god our relationship with him we 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 go after all sorts of other things and it's easy to think the necessities of life are oh food drink shelter health something like that no something far more far worse than being hungry far worse than being thirsty far worse than being without shelter or having failing health far worse than death being disconnected from god If we could have our eyes opened and see the more real world we'd be shocked. If we could have the moon come out from behind the clouds and shine upon this earth the black pearl, what would we see? That person who we want to be so much, whatever they are for you, but but fit, 
healthy, toned, good-looking, popular, meaningful relationships, really achieving things, have it all together. The moon comes out from behind the clouds and shines upon them and they are a desiccated mummy. The skin is so tight across their face, they look like a skull. Their bodies are stick thin. They can't open their eyes, they're so dehydrated and exhausted. They can barely open their mouths, parched as they are, for thirst. People are walking around dying of thirst, drinking all sorts of things that they think will quench their thirst, but they won't. But we have pure water from God. Jesus gives the gift of eternal life with God. If we see life like this, it changes every interaction, everything we want for the people around us. And it shouts to us, stay at the water source. Don't drift from Jesus, whatever you do. The first more real thing, real water. Life forever with God through Jesus. Second, real worship. In verse 16, we see the Samaritan woman still doesn't understand, but she's warming to Jesus. She asks Jesus for this water so she doesn't have to keep coming back to the well. Running water sounds much better. But here is where Jesus gets very personal. Compassionate, gentle, but he goes deep. Verse 16, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she responds evasively. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. With deep prophetic insight, he reveals his knowledge of her and his knowledge of her life. In order to try to show her her deep inner need for water, the water of eternal life. Now the woman, that would have been shocking, wouldn't it, for that to be revealed, the person who doesn't know anything about you. The woman, to her credit, very quick on her feet. She acknowledges Jesus to be a prophet, but then I think she tries to sidestep to distance Jesus from this uncomfortable talk about her personal life and her personal failings and to move the conversation into neutral territory around religious differences between Jews and Samaritans. Now, that's the sort of thing a prophet might like to talk about, isn't it? And so that's an appropriate topic to raise. And it's safer away from personal pains and failings. Verse 19, she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is a huge point of division between Jews and Samaritans. God had decreed that the place where he was to be worshipped, the only place, was in Jerusalem where his temple was. The Jews had been worshipping there for centuries. But the Samaritans, cut off from the southern kingdom and Jerusalem and the temple, had started to worship on Mount Gerizim. And so the woman's question about, is about how to appropriately worship God, or more accurately, where to appropriately worship God. Was it in Jerusalem, as the Jews said, or Mount Gerizim, as the Samaritans said? And here in Jesus' response, we get to see what real worship of God is, true worship of God. How is it that God wants us to connect to him? How is it that God wants us to relate to him? Well, Jesus responds by saying something so shocking and profound. As a Jewish Samaritan, you could never have imagined this kind of thing to be true, what Jesus says here. Verse 21, uh, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The woman asks, Jerusalem, Gerizim, where should we worship? Neither, says Jesus. A time is coming and has now come where you will worship at neither. Verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. 
We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus says, you Samaritans have it wrong. You worship what you don't know. Because you only have the first five books of the Bible and not the whole Old Testament revelation, you don't know who God is rightly. You don't understand how to worship him rightly. You guys have it wrong. In contrast, we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. We have the whole Old Testament. We have the history of salvation. We Jews have it right. The Samaritans have it wrong. The Jews have it right. But a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship at neither place because a profound and shocking change has come with all God's plans coming to fulfilment in Jesus. A more real worship of God has come with Jesus. Verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who's, who's speaking to you, I am he. A new era has come with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. It has begun and will come to fullness in his death and resurrection, which he says, why he says, a time is coming, his death and resurrection, but has now come with him coming. A new era of fulfillment. And in this era, there will be a real connection to God, a real relationship with God that supersedes the old way of connecting to God, a more real connection. And who will have this more real connection to God? Jesus says, Worshippers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In spirit, that is, not in a place. A connection to God by God's spirit. A spiritual connection to God. Which if you have Jesus' words from chapter 3 in mind, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, we know that it is by the spirit of God that a human being can be born again to a whole new life with a whole new heart and a whole new relationship with God. The type of worshippers the Father seeks are those who are born again by the Spirit of God into a new spirit relationship with God. That's true connection to God. Not going to a place, but being born again and made new and coming into an eternal relationship with Him. In spirit and in truth. That is, worshipping God for who He is. Worshipping God for who he has revealed himself to be. And he has revealed himself finally and fully in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 1, remember it says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. In John 14, Jesus will go on to say, I am the way, the truth and the life. True worship is to come to God as he has revealed himself to be in Jesus. Is to come to trust Jesus. In the Old Testament... There was a real, though inadequate, connection to God. A real, though inadequate, engagement with God. A real, though inadequate, worship of God. And it was all centred around the temple in Jerusalem, with its sacrifice and its priests and its offerings and its blood to symbolically cleanse from sin. That was the one way to have real connection with God before the coming of Jesus. But now we see it was a shadow waiting for reality a model of what was more real, a connection to God that is not about going to a place, not about going to a temple, a connection to God that is in spirit, born again 
by the Spirit of God into new life with God. And truth, trusting in Jesus, the truth of God revealed. And notice that this worship, this connection to God is about worshipping God as Father. Now, I read this passage multiple times and I didn't notice that until I was in a, a Bible study and someone pointed out, wow, profound, shocking, Father, 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 it says three times. Shocking to Jews and Samaritans, you do not speak of the Lord God Almighty, the ruler of the, holy, uh, of the universe, the Holy One, majestic, transcendent as Father. But in this new and final era brought by Jesus, people who are born again by the Spirit, who trust in Jesus, will personally know God as Father. There is a more real worship of God that replaces the Old Testament shadow, and it's not about priests or places or sacrifices. It's about trusting Jesus as your Saviour, drinking the living water. If you trust Jesus, you are connected to God as your Father today, tomorrow, next week, next year, and on for all eternity. Here, there, and in every place, everywhere, and it's for all people. Growing up, my ideas about Christianity were largely formed by the movies I watched. Um, that and a bit of primary scripture. Good on you, scripture teachers. You were doing a wonderful and profound ministry. But because um, one of my favourite movie genres was the uh, vampire, werewolf, uh, demon, witch, warlock genre, um, it was very, very clear to me that uh, you needed wooden crosses and holy water in your arsenal so that when the demons came, you could fight them effectively. And you also needed a church building nearby because it was consecrated ground. That was the holy place that you needed to go to be protected from demons. I remember one afternoon um, riding around on my BMX with a mate because it was the 80s. Uh, we, we came upon a church that was empty but open. And so we snuck inside and saw there was holy water sitting in a little, little font in there. I crept up to it and I reached in, touched it and nothing happened. <laughs> Because I thought this was the holy place. This is where the, the, the God, the, the magic of God were, dwelled, the, the consecrated ground and, and the holy water. This was the magical water of God. No. No holy places or holy objects or holy shrines or holy pilgrimages or holy masses. Or, there are no places on the earth where God lives or God is more present or that bring greater blessing. Church buildings are not the house of God. They're just buildings. And they can be well built or stupidly built, but they're just buildings. And you can travel through Europe looking at the great cathedrals. And they might seem amazing and beautiful to some, but they're just old buildings. No, no, no. If you're born again by the Spirit of God and so trust in Jesus, the truth of God, you are connected to God as your Father. You don't need to go anywhere else. In fact, there is no other place you can go. That's the place where you can drink the living water, the only real connection and worship to God, Jesus. Now, let me just quick, briefly give you two things this means for you if you trust in Jesus. Wherever you are, wherever you are, wherever you are, your heavenly Father is with you. You're never alone. Don't you sometimes feel so alone? Trapped? In a terrible situation? Afraid? unable to cope, in every circumstance, in every difficulty, in every moment of loneliness, wherever you are, your heavenly Father is there with you. His love is towards you and nothing can separate you from that love. This is real connection to God, real worship. Living every day with God your Father as your Father by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Second, 
Everything you do can be an act of worship to God. Because if you trust Jesus, God is always with you and every piece of your life can be lived to honour him, to worship him. Everywhere is a holy place. Every moment is a holy moment. Every bit is a holy bit that can be used to honour the holy God, your Father. The way you drive your car this week, safely, considerately, obeying the road rules, obeying the speed limit, is you worshipping God if you do it for him. The way you work hard at your work and don't slack off, even when no one is looking and you could get away with it, is you worshipping God if you were doing it for him. The way you come to church each week, even on the weeks where it's difficult and you don't feel like it, but you come because you want to honour God and you want to love God's people, is you worshipping God. The way you come into church and you sit next to someone you may not know is quite different from you, but you sit next to them and you talk to them and you care for them, is you worshipping God. The way you sing with a full heart of love and praise and for the encouragement of God's people is you worshipping God. The way you listen to God's word read and preached, loving to hear and heed the voice of your heavenly Father, is you worshipping God. The way that you clean the toilets at home in order to serve your family, to honour your Father, is you worshipping God. The way you don't big note yourself subtly before other people is you worshipping God. The way you think carefully about the words you use and you choose to use them in such a way that doesn't harm other people but cares for them is you worshipping God. Our worship of God is not trapped for a couple of hours in a, a week in a place. We can offer the whole of our life and every piece of it in worship to our Father. And as we fail, which we do, we just keep coming back to Jesus, the sacrifice that cleanses us from all sin and has connected us to God. Real worship. And finally, real food. Food that is more real than physical food. The disciples return, see Jesus speaking with the woman. They're surprised. She leaves, he goes into the town and says to the people of the town, could this be the Messiah, as he claims? And the people of the town eventually come out, they meet Jesus, they hear his words, they come to salvation, believing he is the saviour of the world. But in between the woman leaving and returning to the town, there's a conversation that takes place around food between Jesus and the disciples. In verse 32, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And the disciples think he's talking about physical food. Could someone have brought him food while we're in the town, they're thinking? But then Jesus tells them what he's actually really talking about. He's talking about food that is more real than physical food. That is more real than the burger that you are going to go home and tuck into for lunch today or whatever it might be. What food is more real than physical food? Verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus says... I have a food that is more real than anything else, any other physical food, and it is, I want to do what my Father wants me to do, and I'm going to carry out his plan to the end. That's the thing that feeds him. That's the thing that sustains and satisfies and keeps him going and fuels him, is obedience to his heavenly Father and carrying out his Father's plan. More real than physical food. If you don't eat physical food, you just die. But there's fates far worse than that. The food to feed on is doing the will of our Heavenly Father. Jesus then highlights what God's will, what God's plan is, what the outcome of Jesus' work will be, verse 35. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest. 
I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Jesus says to his disciples, look around. The fields are ripe for harvest. The people are ready to be saved, to be brought to eternal life, to drink the living water, to come to true worship. Now is the time to reap the harvest of people for eternal life. One sows the seed, another reaps the harvest. Jesus says to his disciples, others have sown. The prophets, John the Baptist, they've done the hard work in sowing. Now is your time to reap the harvest, bring in disciples for the kingdom. And we see this actually happening as the Samaritans then turn up come to trust in Jesus, the saviour of the world, a harvest being reaped, people drinking the living water, coming to true worship of God as Father. And in the conversation, we see that this is just the beginning, sorry, the conversion of the Samaritans, we see this is just the beginning of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. But the food for Jesus, the work that he has come to complete, is to go to die so that he can bring salvation to the world, eternal life. That's the food that fuels Jesus, sustains him, drives him, is to do his Father's will to finish his work of going to the cross to die to bring people for eternal life. For Jesus, doing his Father's will eclipses all physical needs, greater than physical food, greater than the daily needs and necessities of life. For him, it is the fundamental necessity of life. I want to do what my Father wants me to do. What about you? Can I say, my, father's food, my, my food is to do my Father's will. My fundamental daily necessity, I want to do what my Heavenly Father wants me to do. And particularly his central work of bringing people into eternal life. Um, one of the things my family and I like to do when we have a bit of time together is um, have, a, have a movie or a show that we, we watch. I have kids now from 13 to 18, girls and boys, and so it's hard to pick something that pleases everyone. At the moment, we're watching Alone. I don't know if any of you have seen Alone. Alone is a reality TV show where they send 10 contestants off into the wilderness and they have to live alone for as long as possible. I've only seen two seasons, and both seasons are in uh, Vancouver Island, British Columbia. It is bitterly cold. It rains all the time. Total isolation. There's no one else there. Uh, Wilderness, bears, cougars, wolves, no food, no water. You can take in 10 items of survival gear. And the aim is to stay as long as you can without tapping out and and to beat everyone else and have them tap out before. Now, I'd be done in a second. I just couldn't do it. The second season that I watched, the winner survived for 66 days before everyone else tapped out. When you're in that situation, it becomes pretty clear the necessities of life. A shelter, fire, water, food. But pretty, and actually, uh, I need to keep mentally stable, which is very hard to do without people around. But, but pretty quickly, you've got the shelter, you've got the fire going, you've got a water source and you can boil the water with your fire. And Food, though. Food is a daily grind, a daily fight to find food, a daily need of food to survive. My very life depends on it. You'd be driven by it. Your whole life is shaped around the finding of food. What are your daily necessities? Oh, you mean um, coffee, Wi-Fi, Netflix. (laughs) Oh, you, you mean a reasonable income, a happy family, good health, 
enjoyable entertainment, a holiday in the pipeline, and making steps towards my retirement. Or, my daily necessity is to do what my Heavenly Father wants me to do. That's real food. That's food that is more real than food. As I was thinking about this passage, I had a chat with someone who really helpfully pointed out something that I think Don Carson says in his commentary on John. Uh, It's something like this. The thing that nourishes and satisfies Jesus is obeying his Father by carrying out his work of salvation. And here's the profound bit, which shows us the truly healthy person finds their deepest satisfaction and happiness in obeying God and seeing his work of saving people going forward. Did you hear that? The truly healthy person finds their deepest satisfaction and happiness in obeying God and seeing his work of saving people going forward. Is that me? Real water. To receive from Jesus eternal life with God. Real worship. To every minute of every day be connected to God as Heavenly Father because we've been born again by the Spirit of God and trusting in Jesus the truth from God. Real food. To live every day doing the will of our Heavenly Father, particularly his work of seeing people saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would do that work and do that work in a mighty, wonderful way. Father, please save. Please, by your Spirit, cause people to be born again and to trust in Jesus, to drink the living water, to receive eternal life with you. Please, Father, we ask for everyone here that they would do that. Please draw our families, our friends, the people of the coast, the people across our country and the world to receive from Jesus eternal life with you. And please, Lord, for all of us, keep us trusting Jesus always and to the end. And please, Lord, enable us to live every day worshipping you in every piece of it, sustained and fueled and satisfied by doing your will, our Heavenly Father, and particularly your work of seeing people saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.